When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the producer of this series and one of the curators of How To Academy's programme of live talks, debates, conferences and festivals. Over the coming weeks, we're going to take you backstage to meet some of the most renowned thinkers in global culture and others you might not have heard of yet. This week's guest, though, is most certainly one of the former. Neil deGrasse Tyson is perhaps the most recognisable voice in modern science, known for the TV show Cosmos and his own podcast series, Star Talk. But you might not know that Neil is also a prolific letter writer who answers inquiries on matters scientific and otherwise in great detail. He's collected his wittiest and most brilliant letters in a new book, Letters from an Astrophysicist. And I caught up with him after his How To Academy talk to find out more. Neil, it's been thrilling having you in London for your UK stage debut, which took place last night at the Hammersmith Apollo. There were 2,000 people there just to see you. Why do you think they were there? I, I, I'm flattered to even think of it as a stage debut. <laughs> but <laughs> it was indeed my first uh, my first solo public appearance. Actually, I've been in London as a guest on Brian Cox's Infinite Monkey Cage, and that had an audience. I think uh, one of the times we met at the the Science Museum, and one of the auditoriums right. there. But this is the largest right that I've that I've ever done, and it was solo stage debut. I think it's extraordinary that that many people would have an interest in science in general, but astrophysics in particular. I don't know in advance when I visit a city necessarily how many people's interest would be piqued or whether there's other competing events that evening. And another fact is that talk, which uh, you attended, thank you for, for being there, was scheduled to go the day before Brexit was to happen. So I had no idea, why would people have sort of Brexit angst? Would they show up or did, would they need a, a, a diversion from all the thoughts they're having? So for me, there was a lot of uncertainty. But going in, the reception was warm, they were enthusiastic, and uh, we went the distance. You turned 61 a few weeks back. Happy belated birthday. Oh, thank you. And thank you. you're the same age as NASA. Uh, one might expect that the space agency was an early source of inspiration for your decision to become a physicist. But that's not true, uh, even though you're now part of their advisory council. Can you explain to us um, the complexity of your relationship with NASA and how, in fact, in spite of them, you came to find a calling in astrophysics? Yeah, it was... It was uh, so first, I did serve a, tur a tour of duty on their advisory council, but I'm not, uh, you're on, not on their on advisory council My mistake. right now. Yeah, you typically spend three years or so, and then you rotate off. The, the, uh, we were born the same week, 
All right. So the first week of October, 1958, because that's how old I am. Right. <laughs> and it was just we had different arcs of life. You know, NASA was on its way to the moon, which was something to cherish as an achievement, not only as a national achievement, but as, a, as an achievement of our, our species. We've all looked up ever since we've been cavemen, presumably, and wondered. Well, finally, we didn't have to wonder. We can just go. That's an extraordinary fact and an achievement that is standing on the shoulders of of giants who have come before who figured out what gravity is, who figured out, you know, what the moon is and orbits and celestial mechanics and rocketry. All of this had to come together as well as a political will. So all that's going on, but wait a minute, there's another America. What is that? There's the America that is steeped in the civil rights movement. And, you know, we're going to the moon, yet in 1964, we, my family was not, was, was blockaded from renting an apartment in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. There were protesters out front, not wanting people of dark skin to move in. So that's what I saw. But I also looked up at the same time. And so there I was sort of caught in this netherland between the social issues of the day that were affecting me directly and the dreams of the day that was carrying the nation's spirit onward and upward. Oh, by the way, there are other Americas as well. There's a Cold War America over that decade and, and two decades to follow. As of which well, the moon... Mission was an important part. Yeah, in fact, it was completely drove the moon mission. We don't like remembering it that way. War got us to the moon. Let's just be clear about that. I have a whole other book called Accessory to War, The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. That book explores this relationship. that, And it goes way back, the relationship between uh, understanding the cosmos and military conquest, hegemony, all the things that bring power to countries in many ways pivoted on a country's understanding of the night sky. Why? Because initially it was all about navigation. So anyhow, yeah, I, I mean, I paid attention to NASA, as did every, how could you not? But that's not why I became an astrophysicist. Mm -hmm. From purer means, looking up, with my telescope beyond the moon and wondering how it all worked. Not, gee, can I be an astronaut and get launched into orbit? And, I mean, NASA at the time was a racist institution, as most U.S. Yeah, state institutions were. Yeah, I wouldn't call it that, though. Are, are you a racist institution if you're embedded in a racist culture? You just don't even know, right? It's like, it's like going to the symphony in the 1960s. Everyone performing in the symphony is white male. Mm. Are you saying they're sexist? I guess you could, mm. but everything was sexist in that way. And on a level where people are not even thinking to criticize it. Mm. It's like American baseball. If you watch baseball through 1947, everybody playing it was white male. You're not thinking, gee, where are the black people? You're not even having that thought. All right, so, so, I say in my letter to NASA that I, I, I recognize that. It's, 
it's not even their fault. The country was that way, and they're part of the country. So they, they, there was no way they could have had a mindset to say, well, let's bring in people of darker skin color. Let's do that. That's a good idea. No, they're not even thinking that way. When they, when you, in the time when you cast movies, if you had a black person in a movie, it had to be because you had to have a black person in the movie, not because it was just an actor who had great talent. So mindsets were very different back then. But anyhow, uh, NASA started looking more and more like America after the Apollo era, with the introduction of the shuttle era, you know, a decade later. Yeah. And now NASA's, you know, like fully uh, mixed with, you know, uh, light-skinned people, dark-skinned people, people of all genders. <laughs> it's, got, it's got it. And so now it represents Amer America. And you're hopeful about racism and prejudice in America because of your own career trajectory, right? Um, so you write about in the book how 20 years ago your skin color was invoked to undermine your achievements, whether oh, yeah. it's science or education, all, and that doesn't the, happen anymore. All the time. Right. Mm. So there is an arc of progress that I can say without hesitation. And it, and it has nothing to do with any fame or, you know, or fame recognition. Uh, there was a day when one in, you, you, you can quantify this, there was a day where one in three taxis would not pick me up. Wow. So, excuse me, let me be clear. So which, so which era are we talking about? Uh, if, when that uh, was eight, 1980s happened. and 90s. Okay. So if I, if I were heading north from an area of the city below Harlem, below as in south of Harlem, mm. a taxi would not pick me up out of fear that I would ask them to take me to Harlem because they didn't want to go wow. to Harlem. Okay. So you know what happened over that time? A whole other taxi entity arose that didn't require the yellow taxis to go to Harlem. And their motto was, we're not yellow. <laughs> yellow <laughs> as in fearsome. And so they're actually green. So they're these green taxis that work up in Harlem. And that solved that. But still, it's, a, it's kind of a weak solution when you think about it. And, um, it's a, like a, a Band-Aid on a problem yeah. that really had a deeper uh, source. But uh, anyhow, so now it's it's one in 20 taxis. I mean, you can measure the rate of that, and that rate has gotten lower and lower and lower over the years. So, yes, it's slow, and it's odd that it requires so much effort. What would be your advice to people who still experience flagrant prejudice in that way? Yeah, I have unorthodox advice, all right? My father, who's obviously a generation before me, told stories, none of them bitter, about racist conduct of society around him. And in fact, there's a eulogy to my father at the end of the book where I thank him, the eulogy in the form of a letter at his memorial service a few years ago. He lived to 89, so you know it's never a good thing for anyone to die, but... There comes a time where if you reflect on their lives and if they led full lives and there were no regrets about whether you ever should have said you loved them and didn't say mm -hmm. it, you know, mm -hmm. if, if you don't have regrets and they lived a full life, then a eulogy becomes a time to celebrate, not a time to be sad. So uh, the eulogy, the, the, the book ends with the eulogy. Book, it's bookended with the NASA letter and then the eulogy to my father. And so in there, he tells of these cases where there's the struggle in a racist society. But the lessons were never bitter. It was, yeah, this is how things were, and you 
overcame them. You stepped over them, around them, under them. You stood strong in the face of them. Because he knew that some people behave that way and didn't even know why they were behaving that way. That people were sort of passively racist and were not even self-conscious of no, it. Like the institutions that we were like just talking about. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. You can, it's institutional racism, mm. it's called, as there was institutional sexism, right? So, and you can't sort of point to one person and say, you fix this and then if everything fixed. It's just, it's endemic, I guess is the word I'm, I'm looking for here. So I would invite people who are feeling racism, uh, and it could be in the form of microaggressions or just abject racism, by the way, it might also be true for sexism. This my, my comment would work for both, I would say, is take a look through history. And you will find that it was worse than whatever you're experiencing. It was worse 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. It was worse. And then look to see what we accomplished as a society that made it better over those decades. Figure out what that might have been and promote more of that in society. Okay. And that way you're looking for what was good about what made things better rather than for what was bad about what made things worse. And that can create a much brighter outlook for you, your mood, your attitudes, your ambitions, rather than say, oh my gosh, this is against me, I'll never overcome it. No. People overcame worse than that before you were born. Look at what they did and how they did it. So, yeah, that's my reply. So you appear on a list of Harvard's most influential graduates, but you were not, if you'll forgive my pun, a stellar student. <laughs> I, you, I see what you did there. <laughs> you mm -hmm. had only a fairly mediocre school record. Yeah, I would say, not that I was not a stellar student, is that I didn't have stellar grades. Right. That's different. But you're now a you, famous well, educator. Well, so just I'm distinguishing okay. what kind of a student are you. Now, if a student is only how did you perform on exams administered by teachers, then you can say, no, I was, I was sort of an average or mediocre mm. student. But to me... What kind of a student I am is what are my ambitions? What do I want to take my energy? Uh, did I enjoy school? Did I? All of those are true. I enjoyed school. I enjoyed the friendships. I enjoyed going to classes. I enjoyed working. I enjoyed writing the papers. I enjoyed going to the libraries. So I would not have called myself a non-stellar student. I would say I didn't get stellar grades. Right. What's your advice to the parents and teachers who write to you because they want their kids either to enjoy learning like you did, mm -hmm. but also get stellar grades, <laughs> or, or want to steer them in some other direction and are looking to you to help them out. Yeah, there's a whole chapter in the book on parenting. And so that's why I collected some of these sort of advice letters. Uh, I, I think, you know, we're so grade driven in the years through school, you know, performance on exam driven. Yet in adulthood, does anyone ask you how, what your grades were? Does that ever come up? Like ever? So there seems to be a disconnect between what we care most about in school and what we care most about as adults on your second, third job. 
in, in on jobs, they, they want to know, are you a good problem solver? Are you a good leader? Are you moral? Do, do people follow? Are, can you explain things? Are you a good example? Are you, are, you, are you loyal? You know, there are all these other things, none of which are encoded on exams. So I, not that I have something against exams. You got to test knowledge somehow, but to have such focus on exams that focus seems to me to be misdirected. Use exams as an indicator of how much a person learned, not as an indicator of whether they will ever be successful in life, especially since we spend many more years not in school than in school. And if you become, if you use school to stimulate yourself to become a lifelong learner, or if school stimulated that within you, you will learn vastly more in life than you ever would have been taught by teachers in your years in school. So to judge the life's performance of someone when they get out of Eaton, mm. or um, we have Exeter in, in the States. There must be an Exeter here somewhere. We just, because we're not, we're not creative there enough. Is, there yeah, is a yeah, town yeah, called we're not, Exeter. Yeah, we're not yeah. creative enough. In <laughs> yeah. the, in the original settlers just, oh, let's name it New England, okay? <laughs> New York, New Jersey. Yeah, they just couldn't, they just had no creativity whatsoever. Um, and there's nothing new about them now. They're 400 years old, for goodness sake. So, <laughs> um, so they don't teach ambition or curiosity or things. Most people are glad when they get out of school. At the end of the day, at the end of the semester, at the end of their terms, at, at, of the mm. at, when they graduate. And you're glad you got out of school? You glad you stopped formally learning? What? I mean, you stayed in school till you were 32, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like to think I'm still in school. So I, I own more books than ever before, and I, and I read more than ever before. And I seek out my own ignorance and try to patch it more than ever before. And that's something I've continued long after uh, I got out of high school, college, and graduate school. People come to you to learn. They watch your shows to learn. They listen to your mm -hmm. podcast to learn. They might even be listening to this podcast to learn. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, what would you say to teachers about what you've learned about that art form I still, that I, they, you can pass along? I, I still have a lot of ideas that are in the oven, you mm -hmm. know, baking in the oven. I can pull some out now, but then they'd be figuratively half-baked. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to make educational declarations until I've done more homework on this. There are many people who have written on this subject, and I don't want to just take my experience and declare it to be the thing. As any good academic should do, you want to know what people have researched beforehand. But I can say that I can say in advance that uh, uh, many of the books I've read, they want to reform the educational system, but not in any way that I think will achieve the ends that I'm describing. So... So I'm still trying to think it through. One of them would be your children in your classroom, they sh there should be more opportunity for them to be free range. What do you mean by that? To explore the world rather than be told how the world is. Yeah. In the end, your curiosity about the world will have greater value to you than your knowledge of the world that, that would be imbued upon you while you're in school. Because your curiosity is 
if your curiosity leads you to understand how something works, it sits inside of you differently from if someone just told you how something works. The knowledge at the end is the same, but the enthusiasm is different. If you feel that you've chosen to embark on a course of study, yeah, not, you're more likely to not enjoy only it, right? Not only that, I, I, there are plenty of things I'm curious about that I never want to make a career in, but the curiosity is, well, how does this work? And you poke it and you twist it. Well, that's how it works. Oh, okay. I never knew that. Oh, my gosh. I'll, I, and then you'll never forget that moment because you figured it out. Whereas if someone tells you how it works, you'll the, the exam score is the same in both cases because they tell us how this works. But for you, who figured it out by meddling with it, or maybe you didn't figure it out and you discovered something else that the teacher had not intended. Or you look at it and you say, I can design a better version of this. None of that is likely to occur. None of those thoughts. If you just explained how an internal combustion engine works or, or explained what a DNA molecule is. But if you probe it and say, and, and discover it and learn why and how on your own, with your own tools, oh my gosh. You become a lifelong learner. You're manifesting curiosity that we all had as young children that gets beaten out of us by our parents, typically. And I, I joke about this, but I mean it very seriously. We spend the first years of our lives, uh, as parents, you spend the first years of the children's lives teaching them to walk and talk, and the rest of their lives telling them to shut up and sit down. <laughs> On that note, a lot of correspondence that you receive is by people who have their own ideas about what the world is and not a lot of knowledge. They come up with conspiracy theories, all kinds of pseudoscience, <laughs> aliens. Aliens, Bigfoot, yeah, yeah. It's, all in, it's, it's, flat, it's all in there. It's The book has it, yes. Why do you personally respond to each and every one of these letters you do it carefully you give them a scientific perspective that's very comprehensive why do you do that rather than give it to the planetarium staff to answer or direct your correspondence to another source of information because they took the time to write to me and that and typically their letters have some length to them if the letters are too long, they, they want, just want to become pen pals, mm. if anybody remembers what that is. And, and people do write back to you after you yeah, so there are, reply there are, to them, uh, and they argue more, right? <laughs> <laughs> that just got them started, yeah, sometimes. So I, they wrote to me, and there are letters that I don't reply to. These are people who are certain they're right and certain that anything I say is wrong, and they're just trying to convince me. I don't have patience for that. They are not students of knowledge. Those are people who are trying to convert the world to agree with their view. And I found that exchanges with them are not productive. It's people who are genuinely curious about whether their ideas are correct in the face of what established science would have to say about it. That's These are people who are open to a conversation. So I will say... Well, in the case of aliens, for example, or abductions, uh, alien abductions were common, uh, commonly report common, commonly reported uh, some years ago, 10, 20 years ago. And there's even a psychologist who, upon studying all of these accounts 
said, this has to be true because this many people can't have possibly hallucinated the same thing, okay? And his name is, I think it was John Mack. He was a, like a psychologist at Harvard. And he wrote a book on this. And okay, fine. Um, today, I don't have a problem with this. Maybe they all did get abducted. It's just that if your best evidence for being abducted is your own eyewitness testimony, do you really understand how fallible eyewitness testimony is? Do you really understand how susceptible all of our senses are to being fooled? Maybe not. Because if you did, you would say, all right, I need better evidence than my eyewitness testimony. Why don't you like steal an ashtray off the side of the window of the flying saucer? Okay. <laughs> okay. While the alien isn't looking, <laughs> put it in your pocket and walk off the flying saucer. Bring that to the laboratory, for example. All right. Just do give me some tangible evidence that doesn't require your brain eye connection. All right. But more importantly, today, a billion photographs are taken by people of the world and uplifted to the internet. Oh, I've seen photos of UFOs from the 50s, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> so, a billion. So see, and you can stream in real time. So if an alien is walking towards you, ready to drag you into their flying saucer, please get a video of it. Please. We all not only have still cameras, we have video cameras in our smartphone. Everybody's got a smartphone, everybody. So where are where's all the images of inside of spaceships? Alien, they don't they're not they don't exist. We should have more accounts of this that are documented and we don't. So this brings very high skepticism to me about these accounts ever having been real in the first place. What's your favorite conspiracy theory or pseudoscience theory? No, I don't I don't. You don't have, have a favorite. No, no, they're all uh, they're all viruses of the mind the, the people a virus what i what i mean by that is a virus that's harsh uh, there are people who want something to be true and don't understand how to handle countervailing evidence or don't know how to understand the absence of evidence if you need something to be true and you don't have evidence for it all you have to say is the evidence has been covered up by some underground secret organization the the illuminati or the government or and at the end of the day you are ceding to the government a level of competence that i've never seen any free society achieve <laughs> just think this through you're really going to hide aliens in area 51 and the janitor is not going to post a photo of it <laughs> or the receptionist or the other thousand people who work there. They're not gonna leak a photo and become rich and famous. No, they wanna keep working as a janitor for the government. <laughs> yeah, that's what they really wanna keep doing in life. So, and, and the urge to believe is strong. Some years ago, there was a video called Alien Autopsy that aired on Fox. And it claimed to be footage of an autopsy of an alien that was found and you see the doctors cutting open the alien. Alien had this, like the normal alien shaped head, 
that these big eyes. So it looked like anybody's yeah, stereotype. Yeah, for a hundred years, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, more like 50, you know, since mid-century, they all looked this right. way. There was a commonality to it. All right, and it was in black and white. And I said, wow, that's, that's... And so the believers really wanted this to be true. And first, consider that an, a life form forged on another planet. It would be odd for it to have two arms, two legs, a torso, a head, neck, eyes, nose, and mouth. Most life on Earth with whom we have DNA in common has none of that. Oak trees, jellyfish, worms. Okay, so this is a human-looking creature from another planet. All right, fine. I'll even give you that. So how much research did they do to make this look real? Or maybe it is real. Well, there's a phone. So they give you the year that this was. And there's a phone on the wall, telephone. And it has a coiled uh, wire for the handset. Well, that, that didn't come in until 10 years later. <laughs> okay. so, so they missed they missed a couple of things, okay? Or I think it was only just being invented at the time. And so they missed one, all right? Uh, go, take a look at any old movie. All right, and see when the coiled handset to the telephone came in, which enabled you to step far away, and then the, the length coils back up again. Just take look at old movies. They didn't really come in until the 1960s, and this was an alien autopsy from the 1950s. Anyhow, little things like that. So, But the believers just wanted to, well, maybe they had a special, they invented the coil at that lab. You know, they try to, they need it somehow. So... As a, as a scientist, you can't prescribe what is true. You have to be honest about your investigations because you could it could bias you into how you obtain your data. So the best scientists are the ones that are absent all such bias. Do you think America is becoming less trusting of scientific expertise, less intellectual, more scientifically illiterate? I don't know. It could just be because those people were always there, and now they they have voices, louder voices. So n numerical representation of those who don't trust science is not the same thing as how much you hear the people who don't trust science. I can tell you that everyone 30 and under who's grown up with technology and knows and understands that the technology that empowers their life was designed by people who are scientifically literate, engineeringly literate, technologically literate, they're not the ones leading the charge against science. They're the ones who understand that we are warming the climate. They're the ones who understand that the um, when a scientist speaks, you should really listen. And when there's a scientific consensus of, when I say consensus, I don't mean vote. I don't mean, let's just agree what's true, no. When I, so I don't have another word to use. That's why I'm using consensus. Consensus of observations and experiments yield a emergent truth that the methods and tools of science have uncovered. When you have that, and it is consistently obtained by new researchers in different countries using different voltages in their apparatus with different biases, they're all getting approximately the same result. 
you have an objective truth that, is, that has arrived. And when scientists agree, you need to sit up and listen, because usually we don't agree. It is our nature. I think you're wrong, and I'm going to show you're wrong. Oh, my gosh, my experiment just showed you're right. That's how that works. Social media gets a very bad press for breaking consensus culture, but you're one of the world's most followed tweeters. Do you think, on the whole, social media is good for the public consumption and reception of science or not? First, it is weird that I'm in, like, the top 200. Hmm. I'm there with, like, Katy Perry Hmm. and Barack Obama. We saw last night on stage what happens when you tweet. Yeah, Yeah, I did post it. I did live tweet (laughs) last night on stage. A very simple tweet. It was just, I just tweeted, it remains true that flat earthers have supporters all around the globe. <laughs> I, I don't know if everyone gets it, you know, or whatever. But so, so, and then you see the reaction and it's instant. And when it lands in the box of 13 and a half million people, the, the exposure, the impact. So I, I, don't, I don't take it lightly what I post. I think about it a lot, much more than most people think that I think about it. Because most people who tweet is, I just just fire it off. And most people tweet like where they are, what they're doing, or some opinion they have. And I hardly ever bordering on never post opinions. I post observations to share with you. And then you make your own opinion. So um, I think social media is still in its infancy. I think we're fumbling with it. I think we don't quite know how to harness it in it. I think we don't know how to best harvest it in the service of civilization. I mean, think about it. When the printing press was invented, the, the quote, modern printing press, so let's go to Gutenberg. I think the Chinese had an earlier version of it, but the one that influenced mm-hmm. Western culture was Gutenberg's printing press in the 1400s. Um, it would be a couple of hundred years before anyone figured out you could put news on print and then sell it as a newspaper that was somebody had to invent that idea using this new mode of communication and all they did at the time was what they previously did right, you're handwriting a book i can print a book so let's just do that when movies came out the first movies people made were i'm going to film this play and the people there's a stage because that's how you otherwise saw entertainment. And someone said, no, I can move the camera. I can go outside. I can, <laughs> so people had to figure stuff out, okay? And I, I, I'm reminded, I read about this, where someone decided to post a camera on railroad tracks and have the train come towards it. And people in the movie theater like we're afraid. Oh, yeah, they freaked out. Yeah, freaked yeah. out. <laughs> like, whoa, see, this is innovation that somebody's got to innovate. All right. So maybe we haven't yet figured out how this awesomely powerful tool, social media, can best save civilization instead of tribalize us because that's what it's been doing. Coming back to the letters, for a while you got a lot of hate mail from small children they were not happy about your role downgrading Pluto to the status of dwarf planet. Yeah, I was an accessory to that, but I got blamed. <laughs> I got full up blamed for it. Yeah, because it was all in the news, and we had a very visible exhibit 
in New York where Pluto was no longer uh, in the same section of the exhibit as the planet. As the, we put it in a section where, where other dirty ice balls that orbit in the outer solar system are. Did you hear what he called Pluto, kids? Dirty <laughs> ice ball. Um, what can we look forward to in the next decade of space science? Well, I, you know, you don't always know what will be discovered, but in my field, there are a lot of discovery pivots on technologies that are brought into service of the science. So the next generation space telescope that followed the Hubble telescope, that's called the James Webb Space Telescope. That's nearing launch. Uh, there were delays because none of this was off the shelf. A lot of it had to be- Is intended. it ever? If, uh, no, it's not. But sometimes it's less off the shelf right. than other projects. This one, none of it was off the shelf. Everything was invented for it. It's a very specialized telescope that can see the formation of galaxies in the early universe. And Hubble couldn't do this or do it as well. So, um, so that will bring discoveries with it when that telescope uh, is launched. And by the way, these telescopes, though they're tuned for specific questions that we're asking, in almost all of them, they can be put into a mode that is just general discovery mode. Because you want to make sure you don't miss something you're not looking for. I mean, think about that. If you say, I think this is going on over there, so I'm going to build a telescope to see that. Or I think uh, I can measure this thing that's going on over here, so I'm going to build an apparatus. Well, but suppose something is going on over here rather than over there. Will you miss it? Will you mismeasure it because you did not, you weren't looking for it? So all of these telescopes, and in science in general, you want, you need some kind of mode of operation where it's just looking for anything rather than for something. And so that's a, a, a fundamental part of discovery. And it's a recognition that your questions can bias you. That sort of answers my next question, which is, what would you say to people who think funding astrophysics and space research is a waste of money compared to, say, green energy infrastructure, the cure for cancer, and other projects with an immediate obvious benefit? Well, that's it's pitting one source of funding against another. Mm. If you look at the money that funds cancer research, I think last I checked, it's, it's huge. And are you going to say... We shouldn't do anything but put money in cancer research until we cure cancer, then put money in space. Okay, I, I can see how you might want to pose that argument. You would prioritize society's problems and only do the things that appear to be sort of luxurious activities and save those for last. By the way, on that scale, art would come in dead last, mm. okay, especially public art. Mm. Dead last, if that's how you're going to prioritize a society. Uh, art doesn't cure cancer. Art doesn't cure the flu, okay? So I think in a free society, you know, what defines culture? What defines your nation? It's, it's the mixture of what it prioritizes. It's the combination of the art, the science, the technology, the engineering, the medicine, the, 
the education, the architecture. It's the mix of all of that that says, wow, this is a place I want to live. Because maybe I'm not interested in curing cancer. Maybe I'm not good at it, but I'm good at this other thing. We're all interested in curing cancers. I didn't mean to word it that way. I'm just saying I might have talents that are not in a laboratory. I want to create with my hands. And, you know, why have great architecture? You can just build a box. We can all work in a box, a cube, <laughs> with no particular design. But why? Because when you enter spaces, you feel good. You feel transported why you know our feelings matter because we're humans and we feel so there was a uh, i forgot i said it might, might have been arthur compton there's a you know congress is asking you why should we fund this particle accelerator okay what value does it have to the defense of the nation okay and the reply is i don't know what value it does or ever will but I can tell you this, the fact that we embark upon these quests makes this a nation worth defending. So not only that, I didn't give you the obvious answer, which is there are discoveries that can come from other branches of science that can inform other branches of science. So consider that every machine in a hospital with an on-off switch that's brought into the service of diagnosing the condition of your body without cutting you open is based on a principle of physics discovered by a physicist who had no interest in medicine. Wow. <laughs> okay? So if you want to say, don't fund these other things, let's just fund medicine, um, you have ossified the, the, the hospital. In, a, in, the, in the year that you declared that, that's you're done with all of your tools of the trade. You're stymieing like creative progress in science and medicine, yeah, I'm and saying, presumably other areas of society too. Well, th so that's my mm. point. The cross pollination is mm. what matters. My physics professor in college was interested in the nuclei of atoms in space. Discovered a new phenomenon called um, magnetic resonance. Won a Nobel Prize for this. Okay. Later, a medical technologist looked at that phenomenon and said, you know, I can build a machine that can measure the, the nuclei of soft tissue in your body. Soft tissue that the X-ray does not catch because the X-ray is best for dense things like bones. So they invented it. What's that called? The magnetic resonance imager. Technically, it's the nuclear magnetic resonance, resonance imager, but that uses one of the outlawed N-words. Okay. <laughs> Are you going to walk into a machine that has the word nuclear in it? All right. So they take off the, they remove the N. The N is not there. It's really a nuclear magnetic resonance imager. So, so MRIs, we all just slide ourselves into it. And that would not have existed. And now we have the whole field of neuroscience. Neuroscience is coming professor. in. You need, you, need, you need physics in there, the tools. Uh, you know, the EKG, the EEG, this all uses electricity. Mm. Doctors didn't discover electricity, mm. right? So you can't, with any 
understanding of history, go forward and say, let's not fund chemistry or physics or even astrophysics because you only want to fund medicine. You will stunt the progress of medicine unwittingly simply by preventing them from ever getting any new tools. What are your thoughts on the new space race, which certainly from the outside seems like it's being led by billionaires for the benefit of other very rich people? Yeah, it's not being led by them, although that's the impression the press will give you. There's nothing a billionaire has done that NASA hasn't already done 50 years ago. Okay? So, so they're not leading it. What they're trying to do is do what NASA has already done, but much more cheaply. Okay, so they're leaning it in that space. Right. No pun intended. The space of affordability. And that's a good thing. You, you want reusable rockets. So you don't have to have a new... You know, imagine if you had to reuse... If, if you discarded a 747 every time you flew it. But roll out a new one. You're going to fly back across... <laughs> the, the, you know, you keep... you you. It's not... Uh, you need reusability. So Elon Musk is, is championing that cause. But he wasn't the first to orbit the Earth. And he took cargo to the space station, and that was headlines. But, of course, NASA's been bringing cargo to the space station for 40 years, or 35 years. So uh, keep in mind that to do something first in space is expensive, it's dangerous, and it's not clear what the return on that investment is. So that's a very short meeting in the venture capitalist right. uh, 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 boardroom. <laughs> and they want the return on the investment. So the history of this exercise is that governments do the first things that are expensive. They have longer term goals. They're not as beholden to a quarterly report or an annual report or to investors. And they can do it for geopolitical, even hegemonistic reasons. They can be motivated or even economic reasons, but they can have a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan, in ways that corporations can't really, mm -hmm. they have a shorter financial horizon than a country does. So the country does it first, and they get to write about it and say, well, this was the best route, and this one, this was dangerous, and we lost a few people doing it this way, and we didn't lose people that way, and there's food here, but not there, all right? I'm mixing different uh, historical <laughs> issues here, but you get my point. There's no food in space. There's no food in space. <laughs> but Columbus, how do you know where he's going to land, right? Uh, he comes back and reports, uh, this is how long it took, this is what I found, here are the hostels, here are the friendlies, here's the this. Then the Dutch East India Trading Company came in to make a buck because you can quantify the risks. So that's what I see happening here. Or... We, we, America decides to go to Mars, but we don't have a rocket. And Elon says, Elon Musk says, I have a rocket. <laughs> so then we buy his rocket and then fly there. Right. That's not Elon flying there. That's right. the government right, flying right. there using his hardware. Well, space has been using hardware from the space industrial complex ever since day one. Boeing, Lockheed, Martin Marinetta, and a lot of those companies have, have, have consolidated. There's Lockheed Martin now, right? Um, there's... Grumman, okay, Northrop Grumman, that's one company, there used to be two. All of those. Do you realize Grumman made the lunar excursion module? All right. But since NASA paid for it, and it wasn't just their own making, it said NASA on the side of it. It didn't say Grumman on the side of it. But Grumman made it. NASA didn't make it. And where's Grumman? It's in Long Island, New York. 
and there's a town called Beth Page. To this day, those people walk proud because every, proudly, everyone knows, knew somebody who was a secretary, an engineer, a scientist, a janitor in the service of that quest. So that's a governmental thing right. with gov the deep pockets of a government. And it's the military and astrophysics collaboration that we were discussing earlier in action. Yes, and I see no reason why that wouldn't continue ever into the future. Um, another reason people write to you is the search for spiritual solace. Mm -hmm. You're an agnostic, and you treat religion with a lot more sympathy than some of the other leading science communicators, naming no names. Uh, can you explain to us what you mean when you call yourself an agnostic? Yeah, I'm, I don't really call myself an agnostic. I do only because I know, based on what people think atheists are, that I'm not an atheist. So we got to find some other word. So you rummage through the catalog of words, and I, the best I can come up with is agnostic. But I don't run around saying I'm an agnostic. Right. Okay. I don't run around labeling people. Or even no, I will label myself. The only ist I am is a scientist. That's the only ist. But the is, this is, that is. No, I'm a scientist. That tells you a lot about me. No other word tells you accurate things about me. And the reason why I eschew the label of atheist is not because I'm running around saying, yeah, there could be a God. I pray to it, but I don't know. I'm maybe just. No, it's the reason why is I do things that people have said, I thought you were an atheist. Why did you do that? Well, then I guess clearly I'm not an atheist. I had a Facebook post, a friend of mine was fixing the Hubble telescope on a shuttle launch, and I said, Godspeed, Mike Massimino. And someone said, I thought you were an atheist. How could you use that word? That's I just like saying goodbye to someone, right? Correct. <laughs> and then I went in a hole, I went back and I said, do you say goodbye? Well, yeah, I do. Well, God, goodbye is a contraction of God be with you. And you used to say, used to say that to people leaving the city walls, because it's very dangerous outside the city walls. God be with you so that you won't be harmed. That became goodbye. You're an atheist, you say goodbye. I thought you were an atheist. You know, so what? this is a stupid conversation. All right? These are words that have meaning, cultural, uh, uh, philosophical, uh, technical, spiritual meaning, and that we're communicating, all right? So, so, I, so atheists chided me for using that word. And then I chided them back and say, stop using the word goodbye, all right? And then we're even. But of course they didn't. I, I, I got an atheist writing to me in the book saying, why do you use B.C. and A.D.? Why are we basing a whole time system on Jesus? He might not even have existed. <laughs> and why do you do And I say, look, the Gregorian calendar came from Pope Gregory, 1584. He tasked his Jesuit priests, who were smart and scientifically literate, to figure out why the Julian calendar was failing. And they figured this out before the era of telescopes which wouldn't be invented for another 15 years. Um, and so, no, sorry, 25 years. So I respect the fact that they fixed the calendar. I have no hesitation referencing the calendar as they invented it because they made a better calendar that, than ever before, and that's why we still use it, all right? So chill the fuck out, <laughs> okay? <laughs> all right, so at, what's my favorite musical? I love musicals. My favorite is Jesus Christ Superstar. I saw it in real time when it came out on Broadway. That's how old I am. <laughs> so if you're going to tell me you're not a good atheist if you have all of these things, then I guess I'm not an atheist. 
Because words are not defined in the dictionary. They're described by the dictionary by how people come to use them. Mm. And clearly the portfolio of thoughts and beliefs and actions of atheists don't apply to me, as people now use the word. Religious people who write to you often feel that science threatens their way of life. Do you think they're right to believe that? Yes. If your way of life requires that your, your holy book is also a science textbook. So in, let's go Judeo-Christian Judeo tradition, uh, most of the, quote, science in the Bible is in Genesis. Okay? That is, most of the topics that the methods and tools of science have access to they don't really have access to you saying Jesus is your savior. Okay, that's a belief that you can hold to be deeply true within you. I don't know that there's some science experiment to test that. But if you're gonna say the universe is 6,000 years old, you're gonna say that. I can test that. And there's a lot of such statements in the Bible. Mm. That Earth was created before the sun. Well, do you know that the sun is a million times larger than the Earth? Right, this is not tenable that you create Earth and then the sun gets created, orbiting the Earth. There is no reference to Earth as a spherical three-dimensional object anywhere in the Bible. And all maps before Columbus, informed by uh, scripture and, and other holy, show Earth as, draw Earth as flat. We should just mention at this point, you are officially banned from the Flat Earth Society's yeah, yeah, they, conference. I can't, they don't allow me to attend the conference. That's evidence that they don't, they're not interested in having any ideas that don't agree with their own. This is part of the tribalization of the world, by the way. They found each other through the internet, and that's what the internet in empowers, um, not for the greater good of civilization. You know, uh, tribalism at its worst is the first and second world wars. That's, you know, I'm different. Tribalism is, not, we're not only different, I'm better than you. My tribe mm -hmm. is better than your mm -hmm. tribe, and you don't deserve to live or you deserve to be subjugated by us. Yeah, we need to keep you alive because you're gonna work for us, that sort of thing, all right? So if you're gonna go into your genesis and say, here is the order of the world, and I have methods and tools of science that conflict with that, if your faith depends on you being correct in the read, your read of your scripture, uh, then yeah, there's a very serious conflict there. Fortunately, in free societies, you can continue to believe whatever you want. It just gets destabilizing if you take your belief system, rise to a position of power, and then create laws based on your belief system that are not anchored in objective truths. They're anchored in religious faith. And other people have different religious faiths. So to take your religion and make a law that affects other people is, is de as a destabilizing force in society. When people write to you, sometimes they're looking for a cosmic perspective on things to fill I think they their spiritual yearning. Uh, yes, I think they're, they're a great, I'm glad you said a spiritual yearning rather than a religious yearning. There are many people, in fact, the, gr the fastest growing religious group are people who are not religious at all, but, but uh, associate themselves with being spiritual. Whatever that means to the individual, I don't, um, it probably means different things to different people, but what they all have in common is a non-attachment to any formal religion where there's a high priest or a rabbi or an imam or whoever telling you how to feel 
and B and telling you what to eat on what days of the week or who you can have sex with, right? There, this, is, this is being rejected at a faster rate than ever before. The, the rules of religions set down on high by leaders, religious leaders. So I bet people have different sense of spirituality. I, I like to think I have a little bit of spirituality in me. It's just looking up and sort of basking in my ignorance of what is driving the universe with a curiosity to go explore. There's, I, I don't think I can have that feeling without a little dose of spirituality in me. But uh, yeah, I think a cosmic perspective is quite potent as a place to look for uh, thoughts and feelings that uh, might fulfill you in ways previously religion might have fulfilled you, but the religion came with baggage, whereas the universe does not. Because one is based in a personal truths, and the other is based in objective truths, truths, things that are true whether or not you believe in them. At the risk of treating you like a rock star who's going to do an encore of his greatest hit, can you remind our listeners what that cosmic perspective is? Well, no, it's more just an outlook. It's recognizing that we are small, the universe is large. We don't live very long. The universe lives like forever, you know, billions of years. That we, from space, Earth is another planet that does not have color-coded countries on it, the way your schoolroom globe portrays them. I remember I was deeply curious about that. Why? Is this what Earth looks like? There are these lines in it, and they're different colors. And then you see the space shots of Earth, and say, no, it doesn't look like that at all. We, we, are, uh, we are balkanizing our existence on this planet. When from space, you say, well, we, we're sharing the same planet. Yet you need papers to cross one border to another. There are borders where people are killing each other because they have a different skin color, a different faith, a different political, cultural tradition. And you look at that from space and you say, what the... WTF. What? So a cosmic perspective allows you to see how small are problems that you think are large. And it can stimulate a sense of oneness. It's very kumbaya, actually. Hold hands. Yeah, we are one species. As they say, we are more alike than we are different. And we can celebrate the differences, but recognize that we are still pretty much the same thing. And in the end, that will matter more. Neil deGrasse Tyson, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me. This week's episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Neil deGrasse Tyson. It was presented and produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and it was edited by John Doughty. Neil's new book, Letters from an Astrophysicist, is out now in all good bookshops. You can meet more leading thinkers at How To Academy in London. Our spring programme includes William Gibson, Ai Weiwei, Claudia Hammond, Barry Weiss and many more. Find it at howtoacademy.com. If you enjoyed this week's show, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, Dr Hilary Cottam tells Matthew Stadlin about her radical ideas for a 21st century welfare state. Thanks for listening.